Man, uh, this letter, it, it's about hope. First uh, Thessalonians is, is about hope. It's being about caught up in hope. It's about being caught up in hope. Being caught up in hope, it means being caught up in Christ. It means being caught up in Christ and not in the things of this world. Man, not in the systems of this world, you know, not, not in the things of this world and the material things. And, you know, we're in it all and we should be in it. And we shouldn't, like, become monks and just move out to a desert and just avoid everything. No, we shouldn't do that. We should be in it. You know, we should have a hand in things like politics and, and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, but, man, we can get really carried away and find our hope in those things. No, that's not where we should be finding hope. Our hope is not in who's president, man. Our hope is not in getting the perfect, right, you know, political system in there. That's not where our hope should be because it's never going to happen. It's never happened, ever. It's never been perfect. Um, that should not be where our hope is. Our hope should be caught up in Christ. You know, in, in an unstable empire like the Roman Empire back then, the, Thessio, the Thessalonian Christians were called to hope. And not only that, they were called to demonstrate it in how they live. Hopeless people show it in their lives. Hopeless people show it in their lives. Hopeful. It's the same thing. People who have hope show it in their lives. They, they have something to show for it in their lives. And that's what this letter is about, too. That's what this letter is about, too. And you see, the, but the hope of the world, when I was thinking about this, you know, the, 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 the hope of the world that is common to us is really just kind of this, like, weird, abstract feeling, you know, this, like, imaginary inspiration that we aspire to. You know, the hope of the world's is really more akin to like wishing, you know, like I wish this would happen, you know, and you know, you just kind of like, you, you hope something, but then you don't know what to do with it. You know, like you just kind of hope and then it goes away and you just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but man, Christian hope, Christian hope is solid. Christian hope is solid. It's grounded in reality. Man, Christian hope is living, it's active, it's personified. It's personified in Christ. Hope is personified in Christ. The hope of the world is not personified. Christian hope is personified in Christ, and it's an event. It's an event that we have that was real, that happens, and that's the cross. Christian hope is grounded in an event. It's grounded in a person. It's grounded in reality. It's grounded in something that we can look back to, you know, and not only that, that we can look back to the cross. It helps us to look forward. It helps us to look forward, and we have something that's real that we can hold on to. Christian hope, it's, it's more than just a thought of a future. It's more than that. It also translates, like I said, into living now because Jesus is living inside of us because Jesus is living inside of us. And the Thessalonian church, this is a few-month-old church. It's like two months old. It's a really young church. We're a really young church. You know, we're a new church plant. We're less than a year old. The Thessalonian church was uh, just a couple months old when they received this letter from Paul. Uh, but their lives have been powerfully transformed. Their lives have been powerfully transformed, and yet they face trial. They face struggle. 
They fa they're facing trial within the Roman Empire. And before uh, we get into Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church, we should first look back at when and how that this church was started. You see, the really cool thing about these letters that Paul writes to the churches, uh, I think for most of them, we can find in the book of Acts the, the, the time when the church was started. Uh, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at the text where this church was actually started, how it started, the conditions and the circumstances under which the Thessalonian church uh, began, and what actually happened, what catalyzed starting this church. And it's going to help us to, to blaze a trail forward uh, for when we actually do get in, start getting into 1 Thessalonians next week. So let's open up Acts. Uh, chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and really I'm calling this message, uh, Turn the World Upside Down. I'm calling this message, Turn the World Upside Down. Man, that's what we're called as followers of Jesus to do. We're called to turn the world upside down for the gospel. We're called to bring hope uh, to the people in our community, our relationships, where we work, and we're called to live that out uh, in our lives. We should be turning the world upside down. So in Acts chapter 17, uh, you know, we'll start with uh, verses 1 through 3, and it says this. This is how the church started. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica. This is Paul and, and Silas and Timothy. Uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Man, the Roman Empire at this time, the, you know, really today, the Roman Empire has a great reputation. Would you say that? You know, the history books really paint the Roman Empire as a place that was innovative. You know, they, they did a lot of good things. You know, like it, it, the Roman Empire was the world back then, uh, thousands of years ago. And, but the Roman Empire was an extremely unstable place. It was an extremely unstable place. It was highly stratified. It was highly stratified, and what that means is just highly divided, lots of layers of classes, lower class, middle class, upper class, um, all kinds of divisions. It goes beyond those classes. It was a highly stratified place, many social and economic differences. It was really a community that was heavy and deep in comparisons, people comparing one another to each other, right? You guys know about that. It happens today. We're, we're kind of in a stratified, very stratified, divided uh, culture here in America. You know, I know it's United States of America, and in some, th in some cases it is. We're a united country, but man, there's a lot of, you know, reason to believe that we are not united. We're not united, and it's getting even worse. Man, uh, people comparing themselves to others. There was constant tensions with an untrustworthy government back then in the Roman Empire, the Roman Senate, you guys, you know, we see that today. Just lots of untrustworthiness with our government today. Constant tensions, uh, things boiling over, uh, and, and, and tensions. And for a city 
in the empire to receive financial benefits from Rome. So Thessalonica to, to receive benefits from Rome, which was where the capital was in the Roman Empire, to receive benefits like financial or infrastructural, you were obligated to worship Caesar as God. You were obligated to worship Caesar as God. Man, if you did that, they would, they would just give you handouts. Like, oh, okay, you're good, you're good. So naturally, you know, these cities, to, to prosper and to have the things that they wanted, whether it was libraries or whatever, whatever it was, uh, they had to worship Caesar as God. And that puts people in a, in a peculiar situation, you know? And this lifestyle, it was oppressive. This lifestyle was oppressive to people. And people, people were walking on eggshells all the time. People were walking on a tightrope all the time in the Roman Empire. You never knew what to expect day to day, what you were going to get from the Roman Empire and the government. You know, life was militarized back then. And what I mean is, 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 is uh, you know, today we have police, you have the military, but today we have the police. So you see cop cars around and all that stuff. Well, back in the Roman Empire, back then, you know, uh, daily life was militarized. There wasn't police, there was the military. So on, on most street corners, you'd see like military. <laughs> You'd see military, you know, just chilling with their spears and armor and, you know, you, really, like, people were on eggshells. You couldn't do anything. Man, you couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't rub the government the wrong way or you were going to go down. And this was highly oppressive to people. And religiously, religiously, Greeks, the Greeks, they worshipped their mythical gods. The Greeks worshipped their mythical gods and the Romans, they worshipped Caesar. They worship Caesar and the Jews, they worship the God of Israel. They worship the God of Israel. And yet, yet the city was just shrouded in darkness. It was just covered in darkness and confusion and, uh, you know, daily life again was militarized and, and love and hope was really, it was non-existent. It really was. Love and hope was non-existent living as a, your average person in the Roman Empire. It was non-existent. So whatever the people believed and did, whatever they believed and did, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And something isn't working. Man, we believe all this. We got our mythical gods and man, we're worshiping Caesar and we're getting things we want, but man, it's just not working. I don't feel peace. I don't feel joy. You know, I, I don't feel these things, but something just isn't working. And in comes Paul with the gospel. In comes Paul and his boys, Silas and Timothy, walking into Thessalonica, and they go into the Jewish synagogue, and they start preaching the gospel, something people have never heard at this time. Thessalonica was really far away from Israel. The gospel hadn't even gone this far uh, over into this area where Thessalonica was. It was really far away from Israel. So this was brand new to people, this message of who this person, Jesus, was. This was brand new to them. And he reasoned with them from the Hebrew Scriptures. Man, it's that key verse, why it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Well, let's answer that, you know. I'm reading this, I'm like, that's a great question. <laughs> Not just back then, it's a great question for us today. Why was it necessary for, this, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead? First of all, I want you guys to see the Christ. 
There's a reason why Luke, the author, uh, has this detail in here. Uh, Luke was a doctor, and he was following around Paul and kind of like uh, recording the things that were happening, and he was very detailed about, uh, very meticulous in his writing, and he writes uh, the Christ. The Christ, it means uh, anointed one. It means anointed one, and the anointed one to the Jews uh, was the Savior who would bring salvation to the whole house of Israel. That was the anointed one. This was, a, this was a radical message. Because listen, it was a radical message for the Christ to suffer uh, and to die and to rise from the dead. The Jews believed that the Christ, the anointed one, would establish a physical reign and a government over Israel. They believed that they, the, the, the Christ would establish a physical reign and a government over Israel. It was ridiculous to the Jews that God's salvation would be available for the whole world. No, like this is about us, it's about Israel, right? This is gonna happen for us. The, it, was, it, was, it was ridiculous to think that it would be available for Jews, Greeks, Romans, all of these people, right? And they believe that through military power, they believe that through military power, the anointed one would end oppression from the Roman Empire. They're seriously oppressed. Everybody was really oppressed. They believed the anointed one would end through military power oppression from the Roman Empire. But when you think about Jesus' time on earth, when you think about Jesus' time on earth, the last thing you may think of is him as a reigning king, right? You don't really think of Jesus as like a reigning king because you think about the cross and like, man, he died and he suffered. Reigning kings don't suffer. The reigning kings that we know in the world, you know, man, they are exalted and put on a pedestal and, you know, they thrive and they prosper. This anointed one suffered and died, right? Well, Jesus explained that his kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was not of this world. And he didn't come to seize property. He didn't come to acquire wealth. He didn't come to expand his physical borders. He didn't come to establish a country and, you know, establish physical borders and defend it or anything like that. He didn't come to wage military battles. Man, he did not come to do that. Rather, he came to rule in the hearts of people through suffering and through dying. Through suffering and through dying. So for Jews to be told that the anointed one would suffer and die and that it was necessary that it was necessary, it would be unbelievable. It would be unbelievable for a Jew to hear this, for a Jewish person to hear this. Because guys, all of this is necessary is because our sin is such an offense to God. It's such an offense to God that blood and death is required in exchange for our forgiveness. A death has to happen. A death has to happen. It really, it should be us. It really should be us that takes that penalty on for our own sin. But God loves us. He doesn't, he created us and he loves us. So he doesn't really want us, that to happen, even though it should. But he loves us. So if it's not us paying the penalty for our sin, then who? Him. God pays the penalty for us. Man, God pays the penalty for us. He pays it himself. So the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of power demonstrated by power. 
The kingdom of God is not a, uh, it's not a kingdom of power demonstrated by power. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of power, but it's demonstrated by suffering. And it's demonstrated by dying, by letting go, by giving up, by surrendering. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of power that's defined by love, man, self-sacrifice, self-denial. That's what the kingdom of God is. And to know that, listen, to know that somebody loves us, to know that somebody loves us, man, we need a demonstration. Do we not? You know, words go a long way. Words are good, and it's nice, you know, every now and then. You know, when my wife tells me that she loves me, sometimes, you know, sometimes that happens. <laughs> it happens a lot. Though. It's nice. Words are nice. But guys, it's, it's a demonstration. It's the demonstration that really, oh, wow, okay, she loves me. Or, you know, wow, he loves me. I don't know what you guys, you guys do it. You know, there's the five love languages. I know that's not really biblical, but man, there's really something to it. You know, I, I, I like words of affirmation, you know, so the, the rare times when my wife is like, man, you're the best. <laughs> you're awesome. Good job. I love that. That's a demonstration. Man, I, I feel loved. That's how I feel loved. And she's acts of service. So when I vacuum, the rare times that it happens, or I do laundry, which is really rare, or, you know, those things, the acts of service, that's a demonstration of, of love for her. And we need those demonstrations. We need those things that we can point to, like, okay, she loves me. He loves me. Telling our spouse that we love them is great, but it's not enough. Demonstrations are greater than words. So in this love and self-denial and self-sacrifice, God himself led the way. God himself led the way in Jesus Christ. And that's what the cross is. Man, that's what the cross is. The cross is, now I know God loves me. Man, look at that. Look at that. God has been saying this forever. You know, you read it all in like Old Testament scripture, how, how graceful and merciful and how steadfast he is in his love. And, you know, you read that and he's saying these things to his people Israel. And then there's the cross. The demonstration. That's what we point to where we can say, God really does love me. Man, he wasn't just saying it. It wasn't just words. He really does love me. So the cross for the anointed one, suffering and dying for the anointed one was necessary. It was necessary to cancel the legal demands of the law, of God's law uh, against us. Because that's what sin is. Man, sin is us breaking God's law. Man, if we just do it just once, we're guilty. Man, if we do it just once, we're guilty. If you sin just once, you're, you're immoral. We're immoral. If we just sin just once, the resurrection, man, it's necessary. Rising from the dead, it's necessary. It completes our work of salvation. The resurrection completes our work of salvation. It transforms the way we live. It brings hope. It brings new life, not just when we die, but right here. Salvation just doesn't start when we go to heaven and we die. Salvation starts now. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, salvation starts now. You start experiencing heaven in your heart. Man, through the gospel, 
So how did the people in the synagogue respond? How do they respond, man? We don't know exactly what Paul said. It just says that he explained that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he was saying that this Jesus who might proclaim to you is that person, is the Christ. I don't know what exactly he said. I would imagine maybe he said some things about what I said, but he was going to the Old Testament scriptures to explain it, right? So how do they respond? The text says this. It says, And some of them were persuaded... And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, (laughs) some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Remember, they're worshiping Caesar as God, so for somebody to come along and apparently be another king, that's, be, you know, that's calling people to be worshipped. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by, na- by night to Berea. Man, you see these two responses. You see faith. You see faith. We learn that the synagogue was filled with first with Jews and many Greeks and Gentiles and influential women of the city, right? These women, they were high-ranking Roman women, high-ranking Roman women that were curious. Man, they were curious about this God of Israel, and they're saying this stuff about this Messiah that's going to come eventually. And then you've got, like, these Greeks. You've got these Greeks in the mix, and they, the Greeks had a God for everything, The Greeks had a God for everything. The lower and the middle classes were allowed to worship local deities, but they had to first and foremost worship Caesar. You know, the government was like, okay, cool, you can have your gods. You know, that's cool. You can have your mythical gods. But as long as you, you know, just as long as you worship Caesar, you know, as foremost, then that's fine. You can worship all these other smaller gods. You know, for example, a fisherman, which was a common local trade back then, a fisherman worshipped Poseidon. Y'all have heard of Poseidon, right? A a fisherman worshipped Poseidon. He was the god of the sea. You know, a fisherman made his living on the sea and fishing, and he needed favor and prosperity. And, you know, so they believed that there was a god for the sea and that if they just worshipped that god, um, they would be prosperous in their fishing, So they worshiped this God. You know, Zeus was the highest God. Y'all have heard of Zeus? Zeus was like the highest God, but not as high as Caesar. Not as high as Caesar. Zeus was the highest. But the thing is, is for these Greeks, their gods loved them and provided for them as long as they appeased them. As long as the people appeased these gods, these gods would love them in return and provide for them in return. But the gospel Paul brought, the gospel Paul brought was completely opposite. It was completely opposite. The gospel that Paul was bringing was God loves you first. God loves you first before you do anything. 
Man, before you do anything for God, God loves you first. And you can't please him by doing anything. You please him only through faith. You please him only through faith in his gift of the cross. The anointed one on the cross. That's how you please him. That's completely opposite to what these people are used to. They're like, wow, that's amazing. I don't have to do anything. It's just pure grace. I don't have to do anything. There's no amount of moral good that you can do to cancel out your moral debt to God. Wow, they've never heard this before. They've never heard this before. Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel, it gave the people answers that they hadn't had before. It gave them answers they did not have before. And because of their belief in the gospel, the few Jews that believed, the many Greeks and the high-ranking women that were all once highly stratified and divided, remember, these are just divided and, and highly stratified people. They're now united in a common unity of faith, love, and hope. The gospel is bringing community together. All of their differences, Greeks, Romans, Jews, Everybody is coming together in this common unity of faith, love, and hope in the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. This was unprecedented. This doesn't happen. This didn't happen back then. When we understand what the Roman Empire was like, this did not happen. This was hope. This was hope that they'd never heard before, that they never heard before, and it changed everything for them. It changed everything. It was a hope that was real. Man, it was a hope that was personified in Christ. My hope that was once in like the empire and the Roman Senate. Man, my hope is personified in Christ and the anointed one in God who died for me, who suffered for me. That had never been heard of before. This was hope. And there was an event that they could point to. It was the cross. Man, they could point to that and say, that God loves me. Look, look what he did. Man, and then you got the other response, unbelief that you see in the text. It fell on deaf ears. Most of the Jews were offended. Most of the Jews were offended for reasons that we explained earlier. They were offended, man. And it says they were jealous. They were jealous. They get a mob of guys to do their dirty work. They get a mob of guys to do their, wordy, their, their dirty work. They set the city in an uproar. They attack, right? They attack. They, they extort money, basically, from Jason, who was like this good friend of Paul's. They extort money from him, <laughs> right? These are actions of fearful, jealous people. These are actions of hopeless people, actions of hopeless people. These aren't the actions of hopeful people, but hopeless people. Why are they jealous? Why are they jealous? Man, when jealous, we're feeling envy of someone, of their achievements, right? Or their achievements or the advantages that they have. Man, we want somebody, we want something that somebody else has. Man, in this case, the Jews were just jealous of the following that Paul got. And they were fearful of the loss of their numbers. They were feel fearful of the loss of their following. They were fearful of the loss of their status, of their status. They compared themselves with Paul and Silas. Remember, in the Roman Empire, people were comparing themselves to, to other people all the time. All the time. 
And they compared themselves with Paul and Silas. Free people are filled with the love of God. When you have the love of God in Christ in your heart, you are free. And we're filled with that love to, to, to then give to others, no matter who they are. No matter who they are. These people were hopeless people that were filled with the love of self. They were filled with the love of self. And that's really the essence of sin in our lives, is the love of self. Isn't it ironic how they accuse them of, set, of turning the world upside down? <laughs> Isn't it really ironic how they accuse them of turning the world upside down? When they're the ones attacking, they're the ones forming a mob, they're the ones extorting money out of Jason. These were, these were highly religious, God-fearing people. And they're saying that these followers of Jesus are turning the world upside down. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? Guys, a hopeless person's life shows for it. Their actions are condemning themselves and they're showing their hopelessness. They don't have hope. The gospel fills their needs, but they're blind to it. They're blind to it. And really using them as an example, listen, through, through faith, we die to sin, we die to our jealousy, we die to our envy, right? Through faith, we die to them and then we're buried. Our old self is dead and buried and I am resurrected into new life in Christ. A new self with a new transformed and transforming heart. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. Who loved me and died for me. The gospel both calls us out for our sin. It calls us out. It, point, it puts a light on our brokenness. It puts a light on our sin, our jealousy, our envy. But then it also frees us from them. And it makes us whole. It makes us whole. I don't need a following because I have Jesus. I don't care who follows me and who doesn't follow me. This whole church here, this isn't about following me. You know, if we have five people or if we have 50 people, I mean, I care because I want people to know Christ and I want people to hear the message and the word of God. But man, don't, don't follow me. <laughs> this is not about following me. I don't need a following because Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I need. God's love in Christ is enough to sustain me in everything. I'm free. I'm free from comparisons because I trust my needs will be met in Christ. And look what, look what Psalm 23 says in verses 5 through 6. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will follow me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. That's hope. That's hope. Why would I be jealous of somebody's following when through Jesus Christ, his goodness and mercy and love follows me? I don't need you guys to follow me. I have Jesus following me. I have Jesus' love and his goodness and his mercy following me. Wherever I go, everything else, I'm free from it. 
I'm free from it. My identity is not in a following of people. Man, my identity is in my faith in Christ and the hope that I have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, if, if telling people about the love of God in Christ, if that's turning the world upside down, well, I'm guilty. <laughs> Are you guilty? If telling people about the love of God in Jesus Christ is turning the world upside down, guilty. Guilty. I'm guilty of that. If telling people about forgiveness of sin from God in Jesus Christ is turning the world upside down, if telling people about forgiveness, if that's turning the world upside down, guilty. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm happy about it. I'm guilty. If telling people about the only hope that we have is turning the world upside down, I'm guilty. Guilty. If telling people about God who suffered and sympathizes with our weaknesses is turning the world upside down, man, we're guilty. Is that so bad to be guilty of that? You know, we might be attacked for it. We might be slandered for it. But man, this is good news. Now I'm guilty. If telling people that through faith in Jesus and his resurrection will bring us our resurrection one day, if that's turning the world upside down, then guilty. Guilty. These are the conditions of the Thessalonian church in which it was planted. They set the tone for what we see in this letter that we're going to start actually next week, man. First Thessalonians, it's about a community of followers of Jesus Christ that are caught up in the hope of Christ. It's a community of really, really different people. A couple, some Jews, lots of Greeks. You, you had the, the high-ranking women in there. You know, women were, were highly oppressed back then in the Roman Empire. Even the high-ranking ones were too. And here, here, here's, here's a message of hope that they were all coming together in the unity of faith, love, and hope. That's what this community is in the Thessalonian church. They are being made whole and they're being transformed from the inside out. And starting next week, we'll see how the gospel has transformed these Jews, Greeks, and these leading women. Let's pray.